Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Okay, guys, we are back. Back for part two on this on history. On history. Uh, the previous episode is history. History. This, one. <laughs> um, this one is about to be history. This one is about to be. So at the end of the last one, Giuseppe started talking about these, I don't know, contentious concepts within <laughs> the, the debate surrounding mm-hmm. history. Uh, talked about fact. Uh, talked about event. Evidence. Evidence. And one that I'm thinking gets should get thrown in there too is is one you mentioned previously, Gene, motivation and similar causality. And I feel like the big one with me to kind of put things together is how can we establish a quote unquote causal fact? Right? Because this is kind of an intrinsically inductive mm-hmm. process. Um and and I'm wondering your thoughts on this, like trying to figure out motive as a fact, trying to figure out cause as a fact. Wow, it, I'm trying to think of historical examples. It doesn't. It, it's hard to pinpoint when a historical, what we would call them historical movements, like the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. When it, the, the, no one wrote a book, the Renaissance. This is when it started. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, uh, at the time we're looking backwards and saying something radically different was happening in Italian society at the time in his Italian papal states. Um, you know, wh- wh- and you look at the, the, the Medici family, like who was in charge, so on and so forth. And you look at the art and you look at all these different sort of cultural markers and you go, okay, something we're going to call this the Renaissance. Now th- this is very Hegelian. This is the zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to put it in those terms, the spirit of the times, uh, but we're, we're making this up in some ways, even though we want to concede that, yeah, there is something different going on, but why at that exact date? And the historians disagree on when exactly the Renaissance started. You're, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a causal event that you could say, this caused this movement. Right. One of the only ones that I can think of that you can sort of put your finger on would be the Protestant Reformation. It's one of the only instances, because historians don't, you don't really know when historical movements start. So that's one of the ones that we know. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther goes up to the Wittenberg Church in Germany, puts his 95 theses, mm. and then someone, we obviously don't know who, they grab it off there, they run it to the printing press, and that is the start of the Protestant Reformation. But it's, it's an outlier, and that's and, and it's got a it's got a profound effect, but notice what we have here is now we've got hard evidence. The printing press is there. Um, we've got Luther's own personal writings. He's prolific, so he is what he did. He's created an alternative Christian narrative outside of the Catholic Church, one that was viable because they were you know clamping down on all the other quote unquote heresies at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so that's a historical fact. Uh, historians have to choose some historical facts are more important than other historical facts. <laughs> right, right. 
So we focus on this historical fact, right? But that's total choice by the historian. Um, Is that going to – maybe they do it to help ascertain better causal relationships between things? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, the The work of history that I wrote when I was a graduate student was on teleology and physics, and I looked at both philosophical and historical sources. I, what I do is a little bit different, but I could see exactly. I knew people doing like sort of like traditional history, you would call it. I was doing like intellectual history, mm-hmm. and I would have conversations with them exactly to these points. How there's so much. How do you choose just that? Mm-hmm. And one of the major differences between philosophers and historians, philosophers read a lot. Historians read a whole hell of a lot. Like they <laughs> – there's just – it's more argumentation and thinking and more you're, – you're ruminating over things in philosophy. And for history, it's, oh, there's a source I left out or there's a perspective I didn't get to. And there's an admission that you said earlier in the last, in the last episode that there's always – you can't get everything in there. Um, and so your selection of facts becomes, you know, why that fact and not another? So, and some of that comes down to the time period when the historian's writing, hmm. you know? So, um, now if you were going to write a history, it would be vastly different than obviously we said this, what you would do 20 years ago because people just think differently about history in general. There, you have to bring up the moral failings of people and things like that. So the facts are different as well. Because I, I <clears throat> this might be me, uh, might be like my idiosyncrasy here, right? I think there's a difference between what we'll call an event and what we'll call a fact, right? The event is the the thing that the happened, actuality, the actuality that happened, right? The fact is us putting together the pieces and calling that a fact, right? Rather, like it's not just a. Uh, let's use the. the is, it, is it like the truth actuality parallel mm-hmm. and the Wittgenstein stuff yeah, we talked yeah, about? I think okay. so. I think so. It's more like the 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 truth is like the narrative about the about the the actuality, and mm-hmm. in this case, the fact is the recollection and the narrative of of the the actuality together. It's the recollection of it, which already makes it different than the actuality, and also the narrative and the words that I use and the stuff that I. It's like, but I would say that the fact is probably made of a collection of events. Is that the relationships that we that we build among events that we call a fact, and if that's the case, depending on your situation and your situation, let's say, right, uh, meaning where you're situated, facts will look vastly different today and twenty years ago and fifty years ago, and therefore histories are different. Um, to, what do you guys? What do you guys think? It reminds me of a conversation that I was recently having in my logic class. Um, and, you know, we were explaining the structure of an argument and getting from the premises to the conclusion. And, you know, I was explaining there's these rational claims, which are about concepts, and then there's empirical claims, and then there's value claims. And someone asked, you know, what kind of claim is a historical claim? And I said, well, it seems like an empirical claim on its face. And then he goes, yeah, but like, what if I say that the Civil War started in 1860? Like, is that really an empirical? If I say the, the bottle's on the table, that's a surefire empirical claim because I can verify with my senses. But I can't verify with my senses if this thing started in 1860 because what is even the thing? You know what I mean? And it's, it's ultimately the question of, like, you know, when does um, the straw, when does the grains of sand become a pile? Um, 
And I think this is kind of the issue we're getting at because if we don't have a, a totally clean answer, we r- wind up in the realm of like, well, it's just a choice. We just like make a choice and it becomes some myth. And I think, Giuseppe, you're willing to accept that to an extent. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how do we separate the acceptable myths from the unacceptable myths? How do Definitely. we reconcile the beliefs of it's okay to have certain myths that are accurate enough and beneficial enough and also, but we can't devolve into this total, as I said in the previous episode, like relativistic crazy situation where like any myth is acceptable. So hmm. so you can make the argument that the Civil War started before it started, right? Mm-hmm. So the reasons for it happened before 1861. Mm-hmm. So you could – historians will make that argument. They'll say the seeds of the Civil War proper started – when this country was founded, right? Because mm-hmm. of the compromise over the three-fifths compromise over slavery, let's just say. And that when you gobbled up Western territory, it was always going to be a question of should this land be free or slave state? So you can definitely do that analysis. It, it's, it's, it's actually really worth doing. You, it gives you sort of very rich insight into how the Civil War evolved. But at the same time, we know that the Civil War started in 1861 because we have evidence and shots are fired and secession is declared. All all those things are real. Can you empirically verify it now? No, because it's in the past and you're living in the present, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a, yeah, the fact is it's not, it's verifiable to the standpoint of where you're situated temporally, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't make, it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. What's harder to argue with is the chronology to say that the American Revolution happened before the Ameri- uh, happened. Sorry, after the American Civil War. Well, that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go dig up anything to verify that. I know that the American Revolution had to happen before the American Civil War. It wouldn't make any sense otherwise. So I don't have to go like we know that you that it had to sort of evolve that way. Um, I was going to say something about the Civil War and Lincoln. Um, but but even the I will, I will say this: the, people are very interested in the moral lessons of history to the point where, uh, like the whole narrative of Washington with the cherry tree, mm-hmm. like that didn't happen. We know exactly what book that's from. But people thought it was important that you're going to teach kids history; they need to be taught the right lessons. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of history and Aesop's fable at the same time. And it's like, well, the bigger problem is the guy owned slaves, and he did this, and he did that. Who cares if he chopped down a cherry tree and told the truth? You know, he, he enslaved people. And that seems to be where the emphasis is today. Like, who cares about the cherry tree? Let's talk about this, this guy's sort of um, moral failings, if you will. But what's interesting about that is that the competing moral argument is that for as bad as the guy was, he did this great thing mm-hmm. that can't be taken away, him and a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. So – Washington becomes in some weird way near morally untouchable, even though he's this bad guy. But he's considered – uh, him and Lincoln, usually by historians, the best presidents we've had. Washington because he has no precedent to go by mm-hmm. and Lincoln because he, taught, he brought the country together. And, you know – and it's just weird because, like, let's talk about Lincoln for a second. Esteemed, right? Mm-hmm. People today. Mm-hmm. He was not against slavery the way it's normally – put out there right wasn't the promise i won't end it but i won't expand it exactly he was a free soiler so he wanted to keep Mm -hmm. he wanted to keep it hemmed into the south it was frederick Douglass who changes his mind 
and says, look, you know what this is about. Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave, lucky enough to have uh, a woman teach him the basic alphabet, and it becomes one of America's greatest orders. So we have that issue with Lincoln. No one seems to care. Alexander Hamilton made money off the slave trade. No one seems to care. Because that's not – they did other moral things that were more important to kind of supersede. So people do right. – I don't know where it comes from, but people make these sort of calculations. So question, to use a Civil War example. By the way, I really did think it was 1860, and you're telling me now it's 1861. Yeah. Um, so what is – because this is going <laughs> to laughing at me. What is the event that is – almost universally agreed upon as this is when this capital C, capital W, Civil War thing started. Like the date? The thing. No, the thing. Oh, so the event. The, yes. The sort of – see, that, that, that goes I, – I would, I would say that it pulls you off of the hard date of 1861 to 1865. Okay. Because war – like, what's the common consensus of the thing? Uh, Western uh, – the um, Spanish-American War. So okay. once you had the Spanish-American War and you got what was referred to as the Mexican Cession, basically the, the southwestern portion of the United States, including California, uh, I think uh, maybe a small part of Oregon. But, you know, Colorado, Nevada, um, Arizona, New Mexico, um, even parts of uh, – uh, of Utah and whatnot, um, that ho- whole big chunk, you had parity between free states and slave states at that time. So you had – you and uh, the Senate was equal in terms of that, and um, that's the way they, they won it. Senate was running the show. Senate still runs the show in the country, <laughs> just like ancient Rome. Um, and it was how is this land going to come in? And this is what sort of – the most historians say tipped the scales um, towards the Civil War because – you got uh, court cases that reaffirmed, like Dred Scott, that blacks are property and they're never free, mm-hmm. even if you live in a free state. So now you've got state, you've you've got the federal government, which was created specifically to handle disputes between the states. This is one of the problems of the Articles of Confederation. So you get this new constitution; they're going to handle interstate commerce and all these other things, disputes between the states, and now they can't handle this one because the states. Slavery is expanding in the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. We are the only country with a self-sustaining slave population. We're the only ones. So um, all the cotton, most of the cotton is going towards England and to the north, of course. Uh, but a lot of it's going to England. And as a result, they slavery is expanding. So yeah, they wanted slaves to be um, to be slave states. And there seemed to have been a push amongst uh, religious German immigrants in particular, and they're pushing abolitionism. Abolish this, this, net, this evil mm-hmm. enterprise, right? And it, the, where, do, where, do, where do they reside? Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bismarck, you know, um, North Dakota. Um, Pierre, South, Pierre, yeah, Pierre, North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, right? So Bismarck, German. My point is just that there's a very, even today, right? A lot, of, a lot of Germans in the center of the country. Mm-hmm. And they bring over this religious view with them, and this pushes the abolitionist movement. And then you get people like um, uh, John Brown, who goes to Kansas, and is, he kills a few slave owners with, with a sword. And he says, I'm, I'm killing in the name of a, of a, of a you know, 
of a of of a it's righteous what I'm doing basically. These mm-hmm. killings are righteous and he at some always, point always trouble when somebody says this. <laughs> <Yeah. same. laughs> always and, trouble. And then he goes to an armory at Harper's Ferry, right? Eight, I think it's 50, 1854. Um, Oblini, Kansas is 1854. So you would say that all these things are this is tension being ratcheted up in the country. So and the Spanish-American War becomes this tipping point. Well, the yeah. Mexican-American War, right. Okay, Did I say Spanish it? earlier? I might have misheard. No, it's, it's, um, the, we have that's to say Spanish, eight, yeah. Oh, so, so the Mexican-American War was uh, 1848. So uh, that is the... Thereabouts. That is the event okay. that eventually... Because I have an annoying question I'm going to ask. Yeah, sure. And I think Giuseppe's going to laugh when I say it because he's mm-hmm. probably thinking this too. Why that one? Mm-hmm. Right? Is that what is that what you're asking? Kind of why is that one considered the beginning? Mm-hmm. Well, well, not the be. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if you if you read Dubois, mm-hmm. he he's going to tell you it started with the Three Fifths Compromise because slavery was made. It's written into the supreme law of so, the land. And I guess and I guess that you know that goes to the point that I was trying to make before is like we're making choices. But if you listen to the 1619 Project, they're going to tell you that the issue with race goes all the way back to the, to the very first colony, inception of this place. So it depends on your positioning. Mm-hmm. A fact is the fact. So the fact that we're starting to establish here is the okay. The event that we're trying to pinpoint is when does this thing begin, right? For real. And we have heard different factual evidence for this because all this. People or entities, they will tell you it is factual that was the Mexican-American War. It is factual that was uh, the beginning of the country. It is factual. It is, and all those things are, I'm sure, have documents to prove it. Those things are there. So at the end of the day, the choice that we make as a... As a group, it could be academics. You guys were saying before the, the you know the universities decide this thing, society, whatever we decide, that's going to become the law of the land, the intellectual law of the land. That's going to become the official history. Which again, how is that different from animatology? Myths are not completely invented. There is always some factual evidence mm-hmm. that it's used to build a myth, right? And depending on the choice that you make, the myth becomes more or less accepted and the, the, I mean, not necessarily a popular opinion, but uh, the, the most powerful myths, for example, have the tendency of becoming official religions. And how is it different, So right? your question is how do you – given that foundation mm-hmm. for the discipline, what you would say is the foundation, mm-hmm. how, does, how do you – non-arbitrarily prevent that from spiraling into anything goes, right? Well, that is definitely one question. The other question is, shouldn't we just, you know, we talk a lot about telling it the way it is, right? To make sure that we tell the story (laughs) the way it is. We need to tell history. We need to include all those factual things that were not there before, for better or worse, which I think it's fine. Uh, Why don't we say up front, though, disclaimer, guys, this is still situated. We can put in all the, uh, how can we say, equalizing histories there mm-hmm. as much as you want. But all those things are, on some level, fictional. So, so what's – so, yeah, so – And again, I might be off here, but I, I think that this is important, right? I mean, I – sometimes I'm not, I'm not fond of this idea that, you know what, if I add – for example, again, we were talking about this before – 
if I add the fact, if I had, oh, I don't know, a section of my syllabus on black philosophy or in history, we start telling the, the history also of the oppressed populations or, you know, whatever, whatever the discussion is right now, that this will make the thing more accurate. No, it's not more accurate. It's just from a different point of view. I'm adding another point of view, but it doesn't make it more accurate because to begin with, it was fictional. Again, fictional here doesn't mean invented completely, but it's putting together mm -hmm. this evidence and those stuff in specific ways. I mean, I can tell American history as I'm sure that somebody can tell American history from the point of view of the British and how this place is an absolute farce. It's, a, it's piracy. It's nothing else. It's like you decide to secede from us and this is bad. Imagine if tomorrow Texas secedes from the United States, right? Mm -hmm. We would say that that's not, that they're crazy, that they shouldn't do that and such and such. Again, isn't it all fictional? Not relative, fictional. It's contrived on some level. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with you there. But even as much, there, there's still some things you can't argue. Like you can't argue away. So the Civil War was 1861 to 1865. It's, we we started at Fort Sumter. That was the beginning of military secession, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, no matter whose perspective you bring into that, for uh, it, that still happened into the Civil War, right? But is that is that history or is it just a description of? events that happen one after the other because of course you can do that but that doesn't I, it doesn't seem like right. consistent with what history correct is. I, I would agree so that so that so at that that same war the north sees that war a certain way mm -hmm. the south sees it completely different mm -hmm. but it's the same war and so you don't want to say that both of them are equally mythological equally equal myths mm -hmm. because you you want to say that the South has terrible reasons for doing what they do, right? Mm -hmm. That their myth, if you want to call it that, is less correct than the northern myth about why they're fighting the war. Mm -hmm. So we're fighting um, the, that the, the North is saying that they want, to, they want to keep the Union together. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a long time for them to come around to the issue of slavery. Mm. So the motivation for why you're fighting the war in the North changes to a morally respectable one, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to say that that myth is the, is the proper one. The Southern myth of white supremacy and blacks as property and what they were looking to perpetuate is a terrible myth. Mm. And one myth is more true than the others, right? And the South, the South calls that war uh, the war of Northern aggression or the war between the states and the North doesn't call it any of those things. In fact, they call the different battles different things. The North hmm. names the battles by geographical markers, and the, the South uses the town. So they even change the names of, wh of where the fighting took place based on their respective positions. So there are two competing narratives there. So I think that, Giuseppe, what you are going to say is that you can't dispute the happenings mm -hmm. and even, like, the – the way you could you could verify whether the way it's told is accurate to the order of things that happen, mm -hmm. but the issue you're bringing up is this like conceptual ontologizing, mm -hmm. right? The like adding something on top of the events, like like here are the events, and then now here's the civil war, and yeah. I think you're saying there's like a hypostasi I can never say this for hypostasization of the concept. Yeah, because it seems clear to me that. If Gene goes in in class and starts saying, what was the first battle? I have no idea. Of oh, the Civil War? Mm -hmm. uh, Fort Sumter. 
because oh, it is uh, in 1861. South Carolina. See, so, you didn't know either. <laughs> I'm not from here. I don't know. <laughs> you're supposed to. No, I'm just joking. No, you're right. Uh, you're right. Um, I know nothing about wars in it. Oh, not true. Anyway, forget it. Uh, 1861 for summer. This is, there's this many military from here, this many from here. They fight, wins this battle. Uh, Sumter, uh, it goes to the south, but the only person who dies is a southern commander when the cannon misfires. But it's seen as a victory for the south because the north vacates mm. okay. the fort. So, and you say, you, you say exactly that, right? And you stop saying that. And then you comment on the other battle. And then you comment on the other battle. And if you just do that... You're just chronicling the event, right? It's just a chronicle of it. You're just saying what happens. You're calling the game. Yeah. But you're not saying this one play, this player played better than the other one. You're just saying what happened in a very, how can we call it, sanitized way. Mm -hmm. You're just describing the event. Now, the moment you start saying the things that you said before, right, the moral, um, what can we call it, um, the reason why they were fighting the war, right? And how uh, that happened. And the fact that one myth was better than the other. This is actually what you're teaching the kids, which is history there. And, of course, I agree with you, generally speaking, for this specific uh, situation. But the point is, who has decided to call this thing? You would say, show me where this thing that you call good or bad is, and I will... You know, I will say I will accept that this is true. So okay, this, this meta narrative, the all narrative that we are building here, this is a choice. This is a choice by someone, by some that comes from in this specific case for some moral code, but in general from some social intellectual perspective that has decided right. And, you know, we, this cliche, right? The, right? the history is written by the victors, right? If the South would have won, right now we would be telling a different story, wouldn't we? So, th so yeah, it seems like you're, you're pressing on the very hard fact-value gap. Mm -hmm. So you have these historical facts, mm -hmm. the, what values or what, what are the other premises we're using to get these values in mm -hmm. here. Uh, wow. Um, I think it's a, it's a different – I think to me it's like one thing is taking pictures of something. One thing is making a movie out of those pictures because the mm -hmm. movie tells a story that I can create and, yeah. and modify. Pictures are pictures. Now, what is history? Is it this – this thing that I'm saying, which I think this is what we're saying, right? Is it all this value stuff and so on and so on? Or is it just a description of facts? Because you're saying like, okay, like if you have a number line, and I'm wondering if this, if you agree with this too, Gene. If you have a number line like one through a hundred, you're like, okay, that's a fact. One, then two, then three. And then consider that just the happenings of events. And then you go, I'm going to draw a line from 33 to 62, I'm going to call them the best numbers. I, well, I'm going to call that the, the X, uh -huh. right? And I think the question is like, so you cannot dispute that everything happened in that order, but why Why is the X 33 through 64 and not mm -hmm. like 32 through 65 or something like that, mm -hmm. right? I, I guess that's what the, the idea is. The, you would have, go back to the Renaissance. Why is it not the Middle Ages? And you would look at competing reasons about why you would why you would call it uh, the Renaissance to begin with, uh, rebirth, right? Um, or like, w or why you would start at thirty-three? What are the reasons why you would start there? So, there has to be something that happened at thirty-three that's different at thirty-two. That mm. the numbers all of a sudden uh, 
the logic of the numbers work a different way. Um, like at a macro level, right? Yeah. Um, and, and historians run into this issue when you talk about golden ages. These are the golden numbers, the golden age of numbers right there, 33 to 62. Well, how do you know? And those are much more sub, sort of subjective parameters. But the, be, the better that you can apply those to Eastern, Western civilizations and everything in between, Middle East, and you say these are, these are the qualitative parameters of a golden age. Uh, the economy is good. Trade is safe. Uh, the population increases. Food production yields are high. Uh, building structures go on. You have a strong centralized government and less local control. So those kinds of things are for golden ages, right? And it seems that, that the tide, the rising tide, has legitimately lifted all boats. You say, that's a golden age. Mm-hmm. Let's call it the Renaissance. Okay, that, I think that that's, that's a good thing, right? This idea that there is some change, some, some how can we say, something that... Interesting. Yes, something that is different from what it was before that's recognizably different and interesting that might help identifying something as something rather something that's changed something that's different something that's factual i guess right um still the the value issue is still there right well think of it like building a court case because i'll like i'll i'll argue against you right now right Mm -hmm. so maybe someone gene what gene is basically saying is you're building a case Mm mm-hmm there are some cases that are basically objectively better than other cases, right? Like you, you listen to the evidence of the, the prosecution and then the defendant. And there, sure, there are some hair-splitting times where it's not clear. But there are ones where, like, it's very clear. Yeah. And so there shouldn't be a dispute, right, in, in these cases where things are very clear. And maybe if there is an issue, maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's the philosopher's fault for looking at it ontologically in the first place. Like there is this thing called the Civil War. I'm sure that's maybe the fault. historian's like, "What? That's not what I mean when I explain of that." Of course, right? of course. But as I usually say during the podcast, right? I, paradoxically, I'm not worried about us or the historians. I'm worried about the reception of this. With history, I have the same fear that I have with science. I was going to bring up that this is parallel to science. It for you. is. It is, and it's like I am just worried that. And some people would say, a friend that says, your problem is not with science. The problem is with the communication that science does. Yes. Which is very possible. It is that. And the same thing is with history. And especially, and I say this about different things, especially when I moved here, I've noticed that American people in general, the layman, adores history. It's like one of those things that people appreciate a lot. Like History is this revere discipline here. Parallel to, again, almost parallel to to science because their view as this objective, undisputable thing. And this is dangerous because the moment we figure out, like it's happening right now, it ain't undisputable, but you can go at it from different perspective and things change, then faith into these things collapse and then we're in trouble. And then we have all sorts of social clashes that are dangerous again. And this is the one again philosophers who always like hey i'm warning you don't do this but this is what it is and to me it's like i don't know if i like history too much just like i like (laughs) science too much that i'm like worried that it's going to be devalued by the way we talk about it it's like when you love something so much that you become super critical of it (laughs) exactly exactly Orwell was certainly on to the importance of controlling the past to control the future, right? Mm-hmm. I, we recognize the, 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 just the sheer importance of, of how we understand the past. 
But I think you, I think you're right about the public intellectual being a historian. If you turn on the news, it's usually, um, the, you know, the, the corporate news. They shuffle out presidential historians usually. And again, that's a reaffirmation of that nation state we talked about in the last episode. That th- this, that historians are interested in matters of politics. Um to help understand politics today in some ways, mm-hmm. but also because it's, it's on, quite honestly, like it's safe and you're going to sell books. I mm. mean, you're going to, cause people like it. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they, they know how the market works. Uh, and we do, I think we run into a big problem, sort of uh, mythologizing like presidents, like, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think you're right. We respect it so much the bar should be higher and we should have really high standards for what we're doing. And we shouldn't and we don't expect the philosopher to know everything, right? So we certainly shouldn't expect the historian to know with any kind of certainty, right? But that is the thing. There is the expectation that I know nothing. Right. But I think the meet av- a philosopher, I don't know. So I I meet the average you meet a philosopher you'd be humbled, right? Yeah. Um uh, so my brother-in-law, he's he's a he's a historian. He's you've got a, he's a history major in college when he went and he he kind of hates me, I think, <laughs> because <Uh-oh. laughs> he's like, you philosophers, you just keep on asking questions. And I'm like, yeah. sorry. Like, this is <laughs> there because for me and for probably for you two, there's no answer without a question. Mm. Um, Absolutely. You, right. And so you can give me a description, but it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't know what the question is. Mm-hmm. And the historians, they, uh, you don't got any questions. This is what happened. And uh, that is the issue. <laughs> yeah. It's, mm. So is this like a position you find yourself in often when talking to other history people, that your perspective coming from a philosophical background is like an issue oh, yeah. in the conversation? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, Much like in everything else. Yeah, join the club. <laughs> uh, I, I was at a, I was, uh, uh, I teach, so I teach, I teach so advanced placement world history. And many a few years many years back actually anyway i was at this conference for it over the summer mm-hmm. uh i was working on my dissertation at the time on schopenhauer and i go to this seminar and they're saying things like historic like historical things and they're they're cutting into science and they're saying things that are incorrect um and i'm like like no that's incorrect science doesn't work that way it works this way and for from historians, even and we kind of see this today with the culture wars, science is up for grabs politically. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Columbus is a good example of this. Uh, Christopher Columbus. I've been thinking of him the entire episode. All right, so he's he he he's archvillain extraordinaire right now for a lot of people. All right, no mm-hmm. judgment. That's just what he is to a lot of people. Um. But at the same time, not a lot's known about his personal life, who he actually was, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So historians, they sort of uh, – they speculated for many years, given what he wrote and how he wrote and all the other evidence surrounding his life, eh, this guy doesn't look to be Italian. He might be Spanish. Um, and when you look what was happening at the time in Spain, the Inquisition was going on, and so the theory was that he was a, he was a Jew – trying to hide from the Inquisition authorities. So, identity theft. He assumes this other guy's identity down in, down in Italy. Hmm. And wow. lo and behold, we get the Christopher Columbus that we know in a lot of ways. Um, and they dug up his 
bones, and they did DNA testing, and mm-hmm. come to find out, his DNA says that he's of Spanish descent. The historian in the room I was in, too, this happened. They argued that that no, he's Italian. People are just saying that, and that anybody will just say that. So, um, even uh, the Portuguese say no, he's Portuguese. He's Portuguese, right now. He, he's you know everybody's trying to take credit for what Columbus did. But science is trying to tell you that you no no no, from what we know about genetics, that he's more than likely or not he's from the island of Majorca, and had a history of sailing on the seas that way because that was the way he's able to take like the the um, the western winds, the certain ones the trade winds down where everybody else was going north. So he's this master navigator in the area of all these other things, and they just can't the DNA evidence like doesn't matter for them, <laughs> and I'm like no, that. It, again, the history now that has to be written must go through this evidence. Hmm. This is, this is, it's not indisputable, but it's 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 close. We lock people up. Yeah, and if you do that, you should right? do this. Yeah. So Columbus is a Columbus is a good example, right? Because, um, it had he what he did was had he had the it's the largest transfer of diet and disease in human history between regions and it, the effect is profound mm-hmm. potatoes aren't from ireland <laughs> you know tomatoes aren't from italy i was uh, talking about that today yeah. french fries <laughs> <are> from france <laughs> yeah, right. um and in the exchange goes both ways right um it's funny because i was thinking of him in it, different ways, but 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 you read Columbus's journals, and uh, it's a hard guy. You don't want to defend him. Mm. Uh, you, you you shouldn't. But what people defend is the accomplishment and not the person. So the history, the emphasis is on the event, mm-hmm. which is less subjective. That's objective. He made four journeys. The first one started in 1492, and there we go. And then there are other myths that surround that that are still around. They're historically inaccurate myths. Mm-hmm. So I think your 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 worry's right, Giuseppe. That <laughs> you know, I still today you probably do. Columbus thought the world was flat, right? Mm-hmm. Like what? Wait a minute. He's going east, so he sails west. Do you really think he thought it was flat? Um, no, of course not. Interesting. Um, did he call them Indians? No, India was called Hindustan at the time. Nobody mm-hmm. was calling people in India Indians. Mm-hmm. It, th- that language wasn't around. And so a lot of this sort of gets, like you said, gets layered on mm-hmm. over the years. Um, it's, and you have a, I think when you look, approach it this way, and you go, we have a much better understanding of where navigation was at the time. Once you say they knew the world was round, you have a better understanding of just in general when you start to get rid of those other things that have been hanging on. Mm-hmm. And in this instance... Less is more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I was thinking also of, you know, when I was trying to make the distinction, and we don't have to go back there, but between like a fact and whatever, um, a mythological event, right? I, I had in mind like so. For, when I studied S3 and Columbus getting here, I was told that it was factual that Columbus discovered. America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today, if you say that, you are absolutely wrong. We didn't discover anything. America was already here. The people here. People here. So stop saying that, right? Which one is the fact? Is there 
and I will contend that it was kind of factual when I studied, and it's factual now. So it depends. It's the positioning because it depends on what the uh, the signified phenomena of your words is. Yes. Right. Yes. Because if by X Y Z you're pointing to. Mm-mm-mm, then that is correct. But yeah. if by X, Y, Z, you're pointing to like three different things and like, oh, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's some, you know, some philosopher would say that depends who's speaking, right? One will be factual or the other one will be factual, but it is a matter of. Yeah. Like if by discovered America, you mean was the first <laughs> person to ever land upon the thing, then like, okay, no. But if by discovering, discovering America, you mean something else. Then there becomes like room the for the first yes. European to get there right. since that we have news of. Well, the Vikings were there, <clears throat> but we didn't have up, news of it up in Nova Scotia. But but that's why Columbus is remembered because now the connection between it's becomes made. permanent. Yeah. So the Vikings, it's that difference thing you talked about, yeah, right? Like it is. things change. It, it is the change of which you were, were pointing at. I think, and that is yeah. that is the. I think it might be the central concept there, like this difference that all of a sudden happens and that makes hmm. the event historical well, all of a sudden something changes so permanently that that becomes a story so it's, a di- it's it's the the classifying of like disruptions in patterns it seems to be well, for example temporal patterns that's the, interesting right and when you take the east into consideration so right right at around 1450 so nearly 50 years later is when Columbus is going to sail. But up around there, the East is now pulling back from international trade. Chi- the uh, Chinese did. Um, they send like the last voyages of Zhang He out uh, in the early 1400s, things like 1430s. Uh, the last voyages of tribute. So China is going to become insular. The Japanese become insular. And they cut themselves off where the Europeans now are going exploring. And that seems to be the difference in global strategic advantage between the West and the East, just mm-hmm. in those broad terms. And and what happens is that means now that the uh, – because China was always the height of civilization, right, for thousands of years, you know, um, all the way back to the, to the, to the earliest dynasties. Um, and they're ahead of all, so many things that the West – that the West is not. And it's only after 1450 that the scales – they get even, and then at 1750, this, they, they, things reverse completely with the, uh, with the advent of industrialization. Mm-hmm. And that's when the global balance of power shifted to a point where you could see the long trajectory of what Columbus actually did. Um, it's land is opportunity and money, and it's power. And, yeah. And I, and I think that that's – so this is the – the analysis that we do afterward, the analysis of this change that happened, we say that is when ha- when the change happened and it became permanent. So it's like the change start. We see the I can say the anomaly going up in 1492, if you want, and then in 1750, you look back and you're like, wow, that was that made a permanent dent into this way the way things are. That is historical at that point it's like we recognize it's like saying that van gogh was a genius after his death right you mm. kind of afterwards you kind of build this narrative back and you're like oh let me see the anomaly starts here it becomes permanent historical 
It's like thinking back on your own life. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, I guess from this age to this age, I entered a different period. Mm-hmm. And I feel like floating in the background here is ultimately this metaphysical conversation about what constitutes identity and difference. Mm-hmm. And I think of, you know, Locke gives us some parameters for determining some kinds of identities, you know, no matter how good you think it is. But, you know, de- determining the identity of an inanimate object is like, oh, what's its material composition? If you changed it or removed it, you have a different thing. What about a living thing? Well, that's different because the tree can grow and the cat can shrink and it's still the same tree or cat. So we say participation in the same continued life. Then you talk about personal identity and you're like, okay, it's not that because if you get into a car accident and lose your memory, you're participating in the same life, but you're a different person. So, okay, maybe it's consciousness and has something to do with like consciousness touching itself in a particular way with specific content. And then now it's like, Okay, now what is the identity of a social reality? Mm-hmm. Because you can't really determine what a difference in a social reality is until you first have some conception of what the identity of one of those things is in the first place, right? And I mean, this mm-hmm. is an interesting question that I'm kind of wondering what you guys think. We know what a difference looks like, right? What does an identity look like? It's not sameness, is it? It's some kind of sameness. Not just, I should say, not just sameness. Sameness of what? Mm-hmm. Of economic factors? Of political factors? Is this still America? Is this, oh God. Is this? Is of this, documents, <laughs> of le- legal things? That's what I mean. So is this the same, is still America or America or America disappeared 50 years ago, 20 years ago, hmm. 8 years ago, 6 years ago? 6 years ago, yeah, I like that. 4 <laughs> Going 2010s. 2010s. Going 2010s. Is it, is it the same? Is, is it still happening, right? Is it still the same? Because to be still America is to be the same. Mm-hmm. Is this country the same as 1865? Because if it's radically different, maybe that's not America anymore. Right. Hmm. If we're establishing that the thing is some form of sameness. Because so, the, so the sameness has to come from probably the political union. Which is the which is the Constitution? Because mm-hmm. that's what brought everyone together to be to start. Okay, so it is the same. It it's, is still America because it's still under the same Constitution. It's still the same governing document. It's that's the supreme law of the land, and it still holds today. Um, we still legislate and litigate over that document. The Supreme Court still deals with that document, even though there are amendments to it. Though there are that's right. There, well, they passed the first ten because or else they wouldn't have got it ratified at the time. Um, and now there are 27 amendments. Um, but, yeah, they realized – so you can argue it's still America, though, because there's a mechanism in there to put the amendments on the Constitution. There's the one thing remaining the same despite modal changes. Yeah, so we want to say that – The mechanism is the same. The, like, so the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which are Reconstruction Amendments, we want to say, well, they got rid of slavery. It gave people the right to vote, and it gave them citizenship. To um, for ex-slaves, those are good amendments. Same thing, uh, 19th Amendment, women's right to vote. 18th Amendment, prohibition. Ah, oh, we got rid of that one with the 21st. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we make mistakes, but we correct it. But it still is the same. Uh, so I can see that it's got to be the constitution. Because you still have the same branches of government, and you still have states and the federal government sharing power. So in all mm. that regard, it's so yeah. even if the the societal norms might be completely different, this still remains. America. 
Yeah, and I because think, of the. Okay. I think what changes is the is you is the myth this this notion of American exceptionalism, where mm. somehow different than other people, mm. where our identity is even is probably fundamentally like other people how they see themselves, and if they see themselves as exceptional, like well, you're not exceptional, we are. Well, that doesn't. Well, how can two people be exceptional in either the same or different ways? What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't believe in it anymore. But so that for a, changes. Okay. Yeah, that that changes. But the identity of the country now has has changed towards. Well, we don't say that one anymore. So it's more accurate to say. When someone says, the America I know now is not the America I knew then, rather than saying, this isn't America anymore. I would say that that's probably correct. And in some ways, that's better that it's not the way it used to be. So, which means, in turn, to kind of, that we can still do American history, right? Because we're still talking about those differences that might become permanent inside this thing that still is, though, America, Right. So there is this constant aspect, which I think it's also important for us to write. There needs to be a, this constant aspect there inside of which we make, we observe those changes, which we call eventually historical when they become permanent, and we can tell the story within this framework. Within something that's there still. The framework. Again, the framework might be different. It could be a, a country, it could be a continent, it could be a family, but... But the container's still there. And he has to be somewhat permanent. Not permanent. How can we say? Immutable. Hmm. Or doesn't have to mutate in that period of, in the period of time that I am analyzing. Right. So so the so the question now is for the country, as far as I can tell, is people are finally waking up to the fact that to go back, we talked about the economic, you know, center of gravity moved to the west after Columbus. Well now it appears that the economic center of gravity of the globe is squarely in Asia. And people are and and, and people are fa- people are waking up to this only late, perhaps. But now you have America in a different global context. Sure. But just look at the look at the movies that are popular. Look at what look at the, what's on TV where the culture is coming from. You're getting a lot more movies from Squid Game, right? It's Korean, um, South Korea. You're getting um, uh, Shang Chi. Is that the one? The Marvel superhero. Hmm. You're getting. You're, there's a clear tact of the for of the emphasis of the country both culturally and militarily to the pacific uh and and to the east this is one of the reasons why you sort of wrap up the war in afghanistan is now you've got to take those assets and and put them out towards um you're worried about you're worried about chinese uh power at this point but i i think it's a it's a done deal already Hmm. Uh, i mean that's horrifying <laughs> well, well, I mean, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, I'm a philosopher, so I hate governments generally speaking, um, and I, I, I think that uh, I don't think that the government has the right to tell you anything to do if you're causing no harm to anybody else. So I don't think the government's positive right to enforce to not have you smoke a joint because they think it's bad for your health. Like, I'm not hurting anybody. Or myself. oregano. Or oregano, right. A <laughs> <laughs> bag of oregano. Yeah, good oregano. Point, point. Um, but, but it seems to me that the governments have a, uh, a problem overstepping that positive right to, to make sure you have a just society by telling okay. you, being your parent, you can't do certain things. So is this like this shift in global power? Surely this would count as a, as a historical event, right? Okay. So that counts as a historical event. 
um, I suppose the pandemic, this counts as a historical event because it's some kind of disruption, right? My question is like, can we erase these two things that we just mentioned? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, how, how far down the, like, in specificity do we go? Like, is the invention of the smartphone a historical event? Is the fact that people... History of technology. History of technology is the fact that people are consuming more alternative media and that, like, Joe Rogan has way more viewers than CNN. Does this, like, constitute a historical event? So I I think I'm trying to figure out, like, so we did a little bit about the uh, difference on the macro level, identity on the macro level, and I'm like, okay, what about difference on a a micro level, right? Like, what counts as this change? Hegel would agree with you. Hmm. Hegel would say if you want, to, if you're going to look at Hegel says one of the reasons why you look back at history is you look at commonalities, the way people live. So if you were in the future and you understand uh, how everyone lived today, you would definitely con- be very salient of the fact that everyone's got a smartphone. Yep. Because you would be hard pressed to understand the lives of anyone today without one. Mm-hmm. Or at least if you're looking at that segment of people, I understand some people might not have one, but for the most part. Our lives are digital, and they've, they've migrated that way. The consumption of media has changed profoundly. And all that is happening in tandem with these larger trends globally. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. I think that they're connected. Agreed. I think that they're profoundly connected. Now, how profoundly connected? I have no idea. But I don't think it's a coincidence um, that most of the stuff that we buy – is made overseas, so you got these supply lines, supply chains, and everything They're else. They're playing the slow game, man. They, <laughs> I, I think that Westerners do themselves an immense disservice not to read Confucius. Hmm. Also because that's all they're going to read in a few years. That's <laughs> be the, the only book well, allowed. No, no, but... Oh, ju- that's hilarious. But, but ju- I think it un- helps you understand the, 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 culture. The, the Chinese culture, even though the Communist Party is in charge. China's economy is so cap- – it's very capitalist. Well, it's this weird totalitarian molding of the two systems. So – Yeah, it's capitalist to the extent the ruling class like benefits economically but authoritarian in so, other respects. I'm going to push back on this idea. Yeah. We're going to have like all these listeners. For, what are these Chinese listeners <laughs> having? Uh-oh. Uh, I'm going to push back on this idea, not the idea that, that – um, what you just got – what you just saying, that those things are historical. Uh, that the that the smartphone is historical, then this switch, that this uh, shift that we are witnessing, is historical. Then all those things that we just mentioned in the past, like a couple of minutes, are historical. I think that one thing that we can say is they seem to point towards a change, and we said this is one of the of the marks that an event needs to have to become historical. Mm-hmm. However, we don't know if this is permanent yet. If this mark made by those things, the pandemic, if those things become permanent, then for sure, this is a, an historical moment that will be recorded and which we will talk about later on. This becomes history. If those are transient things, though, this will be just a phase. It's not going to be – we will be like talking about, I don't know. Like last week how this thing happened. Exactly. Huh. This is something that the, some of us will remember. Be like, oh, you remember when we were all crazy for the Macarena, whatever it was? <laughs> Uh, remember how crazy it was? Like nobody remembers the Macarena. Who cares about that, right? Now I agree with you that those things seem to be particularly important, especially the the technological uh, aspect and the and the political sh- the 
economic shifts. But I, maybe for once in my life, I'm a little bit more hopeful. I think that this is not a given. Definitely not the pandemic. I cannot resign myself to believe that I'm going to wear a mask all my life from now on. Mm-hmm. Because that will be the permanent change. Oh, remember remember when grandpa used to go around remember without a mask? His mouth? <laughs> yeah. So the so the pandemic so your point's well taken. You don't wanna you don't wanna prematurely assume the permanence of these things. So the pandemic may end, but its effect on labor may yep. be profound. Absolutely, and this is what right. I'm saying. Like let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> let's hope let's say that let's hope that this is still a phase. I'm not questioning the fact that all all signs seem to point to this permanency. However, the fact that the temporal, I can say, in general, all cycles are much faster now and nothing seems to be permanent because all, it's a different conversation probably. Everything is digital and everything is, we are soon going to live in NFTs, immersed in NFTs and, oh, and metaverse and all those things. Don't you dare. This is, this, but those things are not real by definition. I, events might become that way and they become, all becomes transient all becomes non-permanent. So maybe those things will not be permanent because we have changed our mentality so much that, sorry, China, you're trying, but you ain't going to get it because we're going to change our mind in two years. So the event's not permanent, but the profound change is the motivation within people who underwent the event. Yes. Right. Yes. And there's certainly been that. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Well, you get you got uh, unionization up at Starbucks, in, uh, which is profound, right, up in uh, New York. I think it was in... Um, is it Syracuse? Maybe um, I did hear about oh, this Rock- recently. It might, be, it might be Rochester, actually. First Starbucks to get unionized. Now you're hearing rumors that they're going to do it in, uh, I think, around Boston, maybe in Massachusetts. And so that's a, that's profound. I think eliminating grades in school for profound. Oh, <laughs> no. How, now, however, we're back there. However, doesn't mean it's going to go off. Exactly. They just exactly. voted for it. And exactly. So maybe it becomes that one Starbucks, and that's, that's it, it, and it peters out. It could definitely well be the case. But not the, not the Starbucks thing, but the school. Right, but he's, the, he's fingers crossing. You can't see <laughs> the, the visual. The underlying push that labor is making still remains, even though it might mm-hmm. not just be successful at that one Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Right? All right. So I suppose uh, the moral here is: let's hope we are in an episode rather than a season of the <laughs> of the history of the world. Well, so, well said. Let's hope so we're not avatars already. Let's. Oh God. <laughs> what would it mean to be in a podcast in a podcast in the metaverse? I mean. Nothing. That's the punchline. <laughs> we need we need an episode on NFTs soon. Oh, okay. What they are. I suppose we could do that. So, Gene, thank Gene, you for yeah. coming. Thank you so I much you for had coming. Fun. Thank oh. you, Anthony. Thank you, thank, thank you, Giuseppe. I don't know right. how we're doing this. That's thank right. you so Doesn't much, guys. Matter. Thank you, and hopefully we'll do one on Schopenhauer oh, uh, relatively soon. That's it. And I'll see you soon, guys. Patreon. Patreon, do it. Don't forget. That's it. We're history. See you. We're history. Bye bye. <laughs>